Lindsay's father was a distant and severe man. He worked him especially hard during the Christmas holidays. He'd give him extra chores to do and extra labor to do at the ranch. If he didn't work hard enough, he was whipped for it, and this whipping usually brought blood. But worse than the physical beatings that Lindsay received from his father was the physical, was the verbal lashings he received. Names, insults, belittling put-downs, these seemed to cut more deeply, and they seemed to never let go of his mind and his heart. The memory stayed with him all his life, tormenting him every Christmas, because they seemed to increase an extra amount in severity during the Christmas time. One friend said, Lindsay was never able to find happiness. He became a hard-drinking hell-raiser who went from woman to woman and couldn't find peace or success. Then finally, at age 51, he angrily watched Bing Crosby's White Christmas one last time. Put a gun up to his head and then put a bullet to his brain. Lindsay once said before he died, I hated Christmas because of pop. And I always will. It brings back the pain and fear I suffered as a child. And if ever I was to do myself in, it would be at Christmas time. That will show the world what I think of Bing Crosby's White Christmas. Lindsay was Bing Crosby's son. Isn't that amazing? So Bing Crosby, the, the uh, main character in the movie White Christmas... Now, look at verses 13 and 14. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, what would it be that sons like Lindsay... And fathers like Bing Crosby and worshipers of self like us and lovers of comfort like us and the lustful and liars like us and the gossiping and critical like us, the demanding desires like us and the puffed up and people pleasing like us and the unforgiving and the ungracious like us and all God belittlers like us would that we would take into our soul what verse 13 and 14 says that though your sin be as red as scarlet it can be made whiter than snow because at the cross at the slaughter There's the irony that blood makes white. That there's a whitewashing that Jesus gives to scarlet red sinners. And so what Lindsay needed to hear and what Bing Crosby needed to hear and what you and I need to hear and what everyone needs to hear is we need a washing to white. And maybe for the first time, many of you here have never been washed white by the blood of the Lamb. And there's many of us here, all of us here, though, need that whitewashing every day. And some of us this morning might have a specific, particular issue or sin that we need to even now ask the Lord to wash us white with. And we need to trust Him to wash us white because His cross and the slaughter is enough to make us white. So even as we pray now and ask God's blessing on this particular passage, I think... We need to ask the Lord to again wash us white. 
to press in the reality that the cross creates whiteness, that the cross washes all stain, all dirt, and all sin away. So let's pray and ask the Lord to do that this morning. Oh Lord, we do ask, knowing that we are red in sin. And we know that our sin, Lord, is a nature within us, not just the particulars that come out of it. The particulars are very heinous, and the particulars are very ugly, and the particulars are things like we just looked at, unforgiving and ungracious, unloving, lovers of our comfort, pursuing people-pleasing and puffed-up realities, just trapped in preoccupation with ourself, and even ones that are a little more manifested and destructive in our relationships with our spouse and our children and our children to parents. And so, Lord, for this new year, we desperately need to see what this whitewashing is all about. So, Jesus, even now, would you show yourself to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and takes away the sins of Christians too. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, here's what we've done in chapter 7. What we've done is we've looked at one big idea in chapter 7. And the big idea in chapter 7 was put in a question in the form of a question. We could state it in a proposition, and I'm putting it in the form of a question. What happens to me in the Great Tribulation? That's the big idea of chapter 7. Answer number one was, if you are a believer, you are sealed as God's very own prized possession. Now, in order for all of us to embrace that fully, there was two controversial things we had to look at for you to be convinced that you're a saint who's sealed as God's very own prized possession, that this passage actually applies to you. So controversy number one is we said something like this. Forget about the rapture. The great tribulation is already upon you. And the air left the collective gasp of everybody in the congregation, right? Many conversations have been sparked and fueled by that one statement. But that's the point of being sealed. We need the sealing because the saints are living between the time of the first coming and the second coming, this time called the great tribulation. We need to know that God has sealed us that we will persevere to the end, that no one falls out, no one misses the mark, that that which He began in us, He will complete in us, that we will ploddingly persevere in this life, that the flickering flame of our faith won't be snuffed out, no matter what powers are availed against us like seals one through four. Okay? The second controversial truth we had to see is that the seal is not a literal 144,000 Jewish remnant. We had to see that the sealed are the saints of all history that come out of the first and second coming that are living during this time. We had to see that. The second controversial truth we looked at last week and then I ended by doing something I've never done before. And that was, those of you that wanted to stay after, we actually stayed after and looked at, what about the reality of the nation of Israel, though? I mean, what's God's plan for the nation of Israel? The ethnic Israel. 
I mean, the Holocaust seems to point that there's something special. Special enough to have that kind of persecution. You've got that miraculous six-day war that happened against the Arab states. You've got this nation-state being founded in 1948. Is there something significant going on? So those, almost half of you stayed, and we answered that question. The problem was, is that many of you raised concern that it was not taped. And there was a good reason why it wasn't taped. <laughs> I didn't want it taped. No, I'm kidding. So what we're going to do now is just briefly, before we answer the second question of what happens to me in the Great Tribulation, I just want to give, can't do everything we did last week, but three highlights of what happens to Israel. What is Israel about? Here's the first question. Does God have a special redemptive plan for the nation of Israel outside the church? And we saw that last week. He does not. There's only one redemptive plan. And that's in Christ where there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, child or adult. In Christ is God's plan. The church is God's redemptive plan. There is not another redemptive plan outside Jesus and outside the church. None. Okay? We looked at that. God's plan has always been the church. What I'd like for us to see is turn to Romans 11. I just want you to hear how Paul answers the question so that you may see this for yourself. In Romans 11, verse 1, Paul asked the question. I asked them, has God rejected his people? Notice what Paul's answer is. By no means. So Paul answered, has God rejected his people? Has God rejected the plan he has for Israel? Has God rejected this covenant people in the Old Testament? And Paul's answer is, heck no. Literal translation. (laughs) He might have even used another word, and that would surprise everybody here. No. But notice what his answer is. You say, well, Paul, what's your answer? How can that be? How do you answer that, Paul? Let's keep reading. He says, here's the answer. For, hope your Bible says for. If it doesn't say for, get rid of that translation. Get a new one. For, I myself am an Israelite. A descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. How is God saving And dealing with the people of Israel, he's saving them like he's saving everybody else through the church. He's bringing them into his church. Jew, Gentile, Arab American, Iraqi, Chinese. That's how Paul answers it. And just so we get it, he says, you know what? The true Israel was never the nation anyway. And it's not a church idea. It's actually an Old Testament idea. And what he does in the rest of those verses, he says, remember when Elijah says, Lord, they've killed your prophets, verse 3, they demolished your altars, I alone and left, and they seek my life. And in verse 4, but what is God's reply to him? No, 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 Elijah. I've kept 7,000 and haven't bowed the knee. Five, so too at the present time. Israel right now, so too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. The point is, not not all Israel is the true Israel. Israel has always been about a remnant, not a nation. Isn't that interesting? That's Paul's answer. 
I'm going to answer it another way. This is the second point we made. The history of Israel, especially at Moses, had dual principles of law and grace operating in its administration of the covenant of grace. Whoa, that was a mouthful. Dual principles of law and grace are operating in Israel's history. But they're operating in the context always of grace. What I want us to remember and want us to see that soon as Adam breathed his next breath after his sin, God is treating him with grace. Because the day you eat of it, Adam, you die. The day you eat of it is final and full death and condemnation and punishment. The moment that Adam and Eve still looked at each other and were still here is the moment that God entered into a new relationship with a sinful fallen people, and that relationship is on the basis of grace. So what I want you to picture is that there is a a canopy, a tent of grace that starts in 315 and goes all the way until the last person enters into the kingdom of God. Everything in here is the substance of grace. So when we begin to talk about Israel's history... Primarily, the substance of Israel's history is under the canopy of God dealing with his people by grace. That's why Paul says it's a remnant by grace, not by works. There's not another plan outside of grace for Israel. There's not another plan outside that canopy. Some way that they worked them way into the kingdom of God, like Adam was supposed to do. No, that's over. Every person now relates to God on the basis of grace, if they're to relate with him at all. Otherwise, they face him in justice, right? That's why Abraham said in Hebrews that he was not looking for a sliver of real estate in Palestine, but this is what he says, but rather a better country that is a heavenly one. The substance of Israel's history has always been grace. But there was another law dynamic operating under grace to serve grace. Do you see what's happening here? The law aspect was working on the nation as a whole. The grace aspect was at work on the remnant, which is the true Israel. So what that means is this. It means that the law was meant to lead Israel to the one who would eventually keep it, which is Jesus. It was to show Israel that you're a covenant breaker. You're not a covenant keeper. But there is a true Israel that will come and he'll keep it. And not only that, he'll fulfill all the promises that were eventually given to you. So on one state, you have grace operating, which showed the spiritual and eternal realities. The land that Abraham was really looking forward to. But on another level, there was a law level that had to deal with the nation of Israel as an identity, and it was on a do-this-and-live principle or do-this-and-you-stay-in-the-land principle, and it was earthly and temporal. But they didn't do this and stay. They were shown to be covenant breakers, which was the function of the law to lead them to the one who keeps it for them. So see, even under this rubric, it's still the substance of grace. The law shows the righteous demands of God because they don't, change even though grace is operating even though grace is operating the demands of righteousness are still upon us what grace says is there's one who keeps it for you grace says i'm going to give you a law keeper to keep it for you 
And not only that, I'm going to give you a sacrifice to pay the penalty because you don't keep it. And then I'm going to give you a sanctifier who's actually going to work the law into your own life and you're going to change. And it's all by grace because of one who works. Do you see? All right, so if I said it a different way, it would be this. Another way of looking at the dual principles, if you want to talk about justification, how to be made right with God, sanctification, how you grow in grace and glorification, what eternal life will be like, you're talking about grace. If you want to talk about a national identity and a piece of real estate in Palestine, you're talking about a law operation there. Okay? All right. Third point. Does God have any plan for the nation of Israel? Of course he does. Just like he has a plan for America, Iraq, Iran, and China. God operates with his states, his ministers, and his servants in the civil realm of authority, just like he did when he said to Cyrus of Persia, you're my servant. He operates with the state in the realm of his providence for the purpose of his gracious purposes running through this world's realm. And so he'll whistle for one to go here. He'll whistle for another to go there. But they are in his providence to serve the building up of the church. Okay? Now, you can pick your jaws up and talk to me later, those of you who heard this for the first time. Now we're back to Revelation chapter 7. The big idea is what happens to me in the Great Tribulation? We have one more answer. Let's wrap it up by looking at that answer. Here it is. You, saints, those of you that are believers in Christ, those that are in Christ, you are sealed not only as God's prized possession, where he says, you're mine and you're my property, and, I, and he writes it on the forehead. Just a side note, just in case we don't get here and some of you are out of here by the time we get to those passages. Isn't it interesting that what he writes, what eventually he's going to write, the perfect number is what in Revelation? Seven. What would be an imperfect number in Revelation? Six. And if you went six, 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 what would that mean? As imperfect as you can get, the sign of the beast. So in one sense, what you're going to get in Revelation is you're going to get the Trinity and then a counterfeit Trinity. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. All trying to counterfeit God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father seals his people as his own and he writes it on their forehead. Pictorial language. The same pictorial language is applied to the counterfeit trinity as he will write on the, their heads 666. So it's not as spooky as we think. So don't worry about your credit cards. Okay, nobody's going to get a hold of them. Well, they might. And you might be persecuted for it, but it's not because of the beast 666. All right, you are sealed. Here's the second answer. You are sealed for the ultra happiness to come. You're not only sealed as God's prized possession, but you're sealed for ultra happiness to come. This is a tremendous passage. In 6 and 7, 1 through 8, it's talking about being sealed as God's prized possession. And it's the view from the church on earth. But then the next passages, 8 and 9 to the rest of the chapter, it's talking about another sealing and it's the view of the church in heaven where you're sealed for ultra-happiness. There's a guy named John Ortberg in his book called Dangers, Toils, and Snares. Very good. Listen to this. He says, When we take our children to the shrine of the golden arches, they always lust for the meal that comes with a cheap little prize. A combination christened in a moment of marketing genius called the Happy Meal. Right? 
You're not just buying fries, McNuggets, and the dinosaur stamp. You're buying happiness. Their advertisements have convinced my children that they must have little McDonald's, that, that my children must have a little McDonald's shaped vacuum in their souls. Quote, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in a happy meal. I try to buy off the kids sometimes. I tell them to order only food and I'll give them a quarter so they can buy a toy on their own, he says. But the cry goes up, I want my Happy Meal. All over the restaurant, people crane their necks and look at me. Look at this tight-fisted, penny-pitching cheapskate of a parent who wouldn't deny their child the meal of great joy. (laughs) The problem with the Happy Meal is that the happy wears off and they need a new fix. No child discovers la- lasting happiness in just one. Quote, remember that happy meal? What great joy I found there. <laughs> this guy's beautiful. Happy meals bring happiness only to McDonald's. Have you, under- have you ever wondered why Ronald McDonald is so happy? <laughs> 20 billion happy meals. Right? That's why. Then he goes on and he says, when you get older, you don't get any smarter. Your happy meals just get more expensive. Touche, right? Most of us live our lives like we're trying to find ultra happiness here on earth now. And brothers and sisters, you will not find it here. I was uh, the morning after the Texas National Championship win when Texas beat California hands down. There were some elder football statesmen working off their holiday pooch at the ab machine. And these elder statesmen were circled around. These are some of the new friends I'm making at Gold's Gym. And they're circled around and they're talking and they start talking about Vince Young and whether is he going to go pro or is he going to stay in college for his senior year. It was a tremendous debate. I was doing the lats down. I was listening in on their conversation. And one of them says... One of them starts talking about all the money that Vince Young would make if he went in now. And then there was this elder African-American football statesman that says, but you know, you know, and everyone knows that money can't bring you happiness. And this guy responded by saying, yeah, everybody knows that, but everybody still pursues money. Isn't that amazing? Intellectually, we all say the car won't ultimately give me happiness, but we're consumed with it. We're consumed with polishing it. We're consumed with vacuuming it. We're consumed and we're weirdly upset at any little imperfection we find in it. Right? We talk about it. Intellectually, we all say, others' opinions of me won't bring me happiness. But we won't bring anyone into our house for hospitality until our house is perfect. Until it's cleaned perfectly. Right? Until the dog's in the kennel. Till the kids are chained to their seats and their mouths are mysteriously shut. Right? Till everything's perfect. We won't allow anyone to come in. And then if there's any slight imperfection that has that evening, we're just consumed by it. What do they think? Oh, that was a mess. Right? And this will wear you out. And I think, in just a little parenthesis there, one of the greatest gifts that God has given His church to have in a ministry in people's lives is called hospitality. And it has nothing to do with the program. The early church advanced because they had open homes. Open homes, they lived in their homes, they let other people live in their homes. They weren't uptight. 
They brought out paper plates. They kept the meal simple. And they always knew why they were having people over. Right? So a little side note. Just live in your house. Let your kids live in your house. Let others live in your house. Let others know you live in your house. Right? This is very comforting to me in my cleaning habits. Use paper plates. Keep them simple. Remember why you're having people over. End note. There's another one that especially gets us Christians. Here it is. You can find ultimate happiness in God now. Now that's one you don't hear someone speak against. Nowhere in the Bible does God promise you that you'll have ultimate happiness in Him right now. Ultimate happiness. Consummate happiness. Will you have joy and life and abundant life? Yes, you will. Will you have delight in His presence and His goodness and His power and Him at work in your life? Yes, you will. But will you have it without distresses and without toils and without snares and without difficulties and without pain and without tribulation and without heartache and without sunken dreams and without broken hearts? No! Never. Never. In fact, this is what Jesus says about what you'll have in this life. Jesus says, in this world you'll have tribulation. In fact, Peter says, Beloved, don't be surprised at a fiery trial that's come upon you. And if we're honest, that's the first thing we are when a trial comes upon us. What happened here? As though something strange were happening to you. In Peter's theology, what was strange is if you didn't suffer. Paul says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. The Bible never tells the church on earth, you will have ultimate happiness in God or in anything right now. But it tells the church in heaven, you will. The church in heaven, it says, the doors are thrown open and you get supra, ultra life. In God, in paradise, in the presence of God. And that's what we get here in our last part of Revelation. In 9 through 17, we get the seal for ultra happiness. We now are looking, seven is is two perspectives of the church. If you don't get two perspectives of the church, you're going to misinterpret and misread Revelation 7 and Revelation every time. If you don't recognize that in chapter 6, the big question was, who can stand before the holiness of God? And chapter 7 says, these folks can. The ones that are sealed, the church on earth, and now we go into heaven, the ones that are sealed for ultra happiness in heaven. Notice the language in verse 9. And it says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, Here's that key word. What are they doing? Standing before the throne. Who can stand? These people can stand. All who trust in a slaughter stand, whether you're on earth or whether you've now died and gone to be with the Lord and you're in heaven. So, the church in heaven are... Exactly what's taking place in 13 and 14. Just so we make clear what church is happening here. The church in heaven. Remember, look how the elders addressing John. 
Who are these people? He wants John to know, who are these people? And John says, you know. And he says, yeah, here, these are the people, what? Coming out of the tribulation. These are the saints that are dying and are now leaving the church militant on the doors and on the cusp of entering into the promised land, numbered just like numbers numbered the tribes of Israel. I mean, the pictures are clear. Israel's about ready to go into the promised land. God says, number them. That's why it's the book of Numbers. Number them. Organize them. We're going in. And here he is numbering and organizing his church on earth before we go in. 144,000, the perfect, complete, full number. And then when you die, you go from the church on earth to the church in heaven. You're coming out of the tribulation, right? And you get ultra happiness. CO5, remember what the saints were doing? They were saying, how long, Lord, till the consummation comes? How long, Lord, till you break in with ultimate justice and the world's finally judged and we're in the new heavens and the new earth? And God says, peace. Peace to you. Rest a little longer. Here's the rest. Ultra happiness. Here's what it looks like. It comes in the form of three great truths. You remember in in chapter 4 and chapter 5, we saw that the one who sits on the throne, the throne's the center of the universe. And remember what we saw when, when we began to look at who sits on the throne. He only could be described in, in, in light. And he was described in other world realities. It was hard to get a picture on him. He was described in the way he was revealed in the Old Testament. And then when you were on the throne, the next creatures were these incredible heavenly beings. And remember what they were like. And we're all like, oh man. And that's God's praetorium guard, His bodyguards. They guard from any uncleanliness coming into holiness. What Adam was supposed to do. The Levite priests did do. Not perfectly. But what's interesting is between the first creature and God, there was said to be what? A vast sea of glass. An uncrossable expanse. Same language as in Genesis 1 when the sky and the earth were separated and there was this great expanse. The separation between God and the creature is infinite. And now, you cross it to the other side. And you find rest. That's what's happening in this passage. And there are three tremendous truths of ultimate happiness here. The first one, as you look in 15, therefore, they are before the throne of God. Before the throne of God means you see God. I mean, think about that. You just got done going through chapter 4 and chapter 5, and He's incredible in this vast expanse. And then all of a sudden, you cross this expanse, and you're now before the throne of God on the other side of the expanse, and you see him. Uh, George Marsden, who just wrote the definitive biography on Jonathan Edwards, said this about Jonathan Edwards. He said, Edwards spent his whole life preparing to die. Continuing on Edwards' view of life, he said, for those who spurned God's spirit, this was Edwards' view of things, for those who spurned God's spirit, life was like walking on a rotten canvas. And at any moment, they might suddenly find themselves plunged simply by the weight of their sins into everlasting hell. 
Continuing his thought, by contrast, if one had experienced God's transforming work, then death would be a release in which one was born upward to see Christ's glory. In verse 15, you're seeing the release to see Jesus. The first truth of ultra-happiness is you see Jesus. And you see him in all his glory and all his greatness. And you see him for you. Notice what happens next. You serve him day and night in his temple. You know what this means? This means you finally become fully human. (laughs) You're finally imitating God. That's what serving means. You're imitating him. You're reflecting him. Not only in your wisdom and the way you think and in your worship and the way you delight and love and in your hands and the way you work. Everything. True ultra purpose. You're infused with life. You have purpose and powerful toil, labor without the toil, without the thorns and thistles. You're finally set free to work like you've never worked before. Everything you do and the way that you serve God bears fruit and it multiplies and it's productive. There's no futility, no emptiness, no crashing computers, no disgruntled employers and employees. It is glorious work. The kind of work when you're done at the end of the day, you're ready to go again. And you're never tired. You're more infused with mattering and meaning like you've never felt before. Day and night, day and night. And not only that, it's a serving based on seeing. Don't miss the the order here. You see Him first. And because you see Him, you serve out of the overflow of seeing. It's always still by grace. and It's always still by God's greatness being the center of your motivation and your energy and your strength in working. Okay? So we're not talking about a dry, lifeless. If you serve apart from seeing, it's self-righteousness. If you serve because you're worried about someone's opinion, you see the opinion of someone else and that's why you serve. If you serve because you see what it does for you, that's why you serve. Those are all loveless motivations and ungodly motivations. But if you serve because you see, that's the way God orders it and that's the way it will be in heaven. Okay. The other third ultimate truth is this, ultra happiness, you're sheltered by God. The one who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. This literally means the one who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. You know what that means? The picture literally is he takes his presence and he places it and encloses it over you in such a way that you're completely encircled by his presence. You're trapped by his presence. You're saturated by his presence. You're cloaked and clothed and wrapped in his presence. All of life is experiencing his presence now. Perfect and full communion with God, no barriers. Perfect and full delight and enjoyment of God to the highest. As much as your small heart and my small mind can take in, we'll get of God. We have to be glorified or we'd blow up to pieces in his presence. So we've got to have a new body to be able to contain the glory we're going to see and experience. We have to be exalted and elevated to do it. Right? So what 
do these three ultra twos look like in action? Well, look what they look like. 16, they'll hunger no more, thirst no more. The sun won't strike them, nor any scorching heat. Why? The lamb will be in their midst. The throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to the springs of living water and wipe away every tear. How you get to the ultimate happiness is God does all the work. He shelters you, verse 15. He shepherds you, verse 17. He guides you, verse 17. He wipes away your tears, verse 17. Chuck Swindoll wrote in his book, Grace Awakening, he says, quote, I vividly remember my last spanking. It was on my 13th birthday, as a matter of fact. Having just broken into the sophisticated ranks of the teen world, I thought I, would, was, on, I, thought I was something on a stick. My father wasn't nearly as impressed as I was about my new great importance and newfound independence. I was lying on my bed. He was outside the window on a muggy October afternoon in Houston, weeding the garden. He said, Charles, come out here and help me. I said something like, no, it's my birthday, remember? My tone was sassy and my deliberate lack of respect was eloquent. I knew better than to disobey my dad, but after all, I was the ripe old age of 13. He set a new 100-meter record that autumn afternoon. He was in the house and all over me like white on rice, spanking me all the way out to the garden. As I recall, I weeded until the moonlight was shining on the pansies. (laughs) He says that same night, he took me out to a surprise dinner. He gave me what I deserved earlier. Later, he gave me what I did not deserve. The birthday dinner was grace. In verse 14, we have a washing of red made to white. And notice what happens in 15. Therefore, you stand before the throne. Therefore, you get ultra happiness. Therefore, you see God. Therefore, you serve God. Therefore, you savor His enveloping presence. Notice the connection. The cross leads to the ultra happiness. There's a therefore. There's nothing in between the cross and you getting ultra happiness. You not only get grace now, you get grace then. Because in God's eyes, the cross is enough for him. He says it's enough. He looks at the slaughter of his son, who is still before the lamb, and he says, it's enough. I will shelter you and I will wipe away all your tears and I will protect you and I will work for you and I will bless you because the cross is enough. Now, the cross creates conquerors. Don't miss that. You conquer. You want to know that big theme? Everyone wrestles with Revelation 7 and it says, well, to the one who conquers, and we're all thinking, okay, if I work and I persevere, I, I, I will get there. Yes, that's right. But don't, don't miss what's happening here. The only reason why you're working and you're persevering is because he conquered. You're there because of the cross. Therefore, you stand before the throne. Don't miss that. Though your sin be red as scarlet, it can now be made whiter than snow. Therefore, you're before the throne. 
The cross alone is adequate enough to take you to the presence of God. So the cross creates conquerors. The cross creates your crown. The cross creates ultra happiness. The cross creates grace for you now and then. Right? So unbeliever, look at the end game. Look at the end game for the one who trusts in Jesus. The end game is life eternal. The end game is ultra happiness. The end game is a new heavens and a new earth in the most glorious person in all the universe. That's the end game for those who trust in Christ. The end game for those will be just as proportionate, but in the opposite direction. If this is beauty and glory and life and happiness, the opposite end of that will be the same proportion in ugliness and torment and hell. That's the picture here. Believer, receive the joy of these truths now. God will do this. You can receive joy and happiness now because your happiness, ultra happiness, is secured then. And so that means don't let your joy be stolen from you now and your hope be stolen from you now by putting your trust in your performance as a mother instead of the cross. And putting your trust in your righteousness to keep your list instead of the cross. Putting your hope and your joy and your happiness and a trust in someone else's opinion of you instead of the cross. Do you see how this works? Very, very practical. The cross is the central piece of your ultimate happiness, according to this passage. So right now you trust in the cross, and right now you trust in what Jesus is for you, and you say, no, I'm not going to be controlled and ruled by your opinion of me. No, I will not be controlled and ruled by my car. No, I will not be controlled and ruled by my house. I will not be controlled and ruled by what I get in my job and whether someone notices me and whether I'm married and on and on and on the list goes, right? All right, I got some other things I got to do in five minutes. What should this practically do to you? I think practically it should do, do, do this to us. It should cause us to live with one foot in heaven now. We should all live with one foot in heaven now. And that means, let your pain push you forward to paradise. Verse 15 through 17 is showing you that one day all pain will be gone. That's the point of saying there's no more hunger, no more thirst, no more scorching heat. One day all pain will be gone. And so don't waste your pain now, what the text is saying. Don't waste it on bitterness. Don't waste it on angriness. Don't waste it on red-hot tempers. Don't waste it on ungraciousness and unforgiveness. Don't waste it on playing the silent martyr. Let your pain push you forward to paradise where all pain meets its end. And live by faith that one day pain is defeated. One day heaven is like, pain will be like an ant under this Shaquille O'Neal-like sneaker, size 20, completely eliminated and stamped on. And so let your pain push you forward to paradise. Let your pain push you forward to God's presence, knowing that pain will be eliminated. And don't waste it. If you, if you focus on your pain or the avoidance of your pain, it will become an idol to you and it will rule over you and it's a horrible master. You will live a miserable life 
trying to avoid pain and protecting your life or your children from pain. And you'll dishonor God and you'll have a miserable life. But instead, face the pain and let that pain push you forward to paradise where ultra happiness is. Now, the same goes with pleasure. Let your pleasure push you forward to paradise. As Piper says, I love this. Pleasure says, God is like this only better. Pleasure says, when you enjoy something, pleasure says, God is like this only better. I only point. Don't make an idol out of me. So what I say, and I think what the passage is saying is, yes, live and enjoy God's gifts and enjoy His blessings and enjoy His pleasures. But now... Remember the pleasure points, points forward to paradise, points forward to God's presence where God is infinitely better and paradise is infinitely better. So you say to yourself, wow, this meal is incredible. This football game, I don't think you saw a better one the other night, did you? It was outstanding. Enjoy it. Love it. See it and enjoy it. And then that, let it push you forward to the pleasure that God is infinitely better. He's even better than that. You enjoy that so much, imagine what He must be like. And so what we need to do when we enjoy something, if we just take a moment and thank God for it, I think we're on our way. Take a gift and thank Him for it, and then in your mind and your heart, let it push you towards God and paradise. He's infinitely better than this. Wow! And then I think we've now used His gifts rightly. The last one, this is what I'm ending on. It's taken from my favorite pastor. Move toward need, not your comfort. Move toward need, not your comfort. There's an advertisement about the National Guard that used to be at the the theater over, I guess it would be that way, over at, uh, what is that, Hollywood Jewel? Yeah, Hollywood Jewel Theater. There used to be this advertisement about the National Guard and had this picture of this soldier rappelling down a cliff. And it said, you can sleep when you're old. And I think there's a lot of that mentality in this passage. But the point is, you never get old. And then you die and you go to be with the Lord. The point is, move towards need, not towards your comfort. You see, the easy way is, when you need to discipline your children, the easy way is the quick fix. The needful way is to shepherd their little hearts. Even if it means you must put your agenda on hold. Move toward serving your co-worker, not toward the easy way of promoting yourself. Move towards ministry in all its forms. Move towards involvement in the church. Move towards word-based ministry, deed-based ministry, ministry teams. We've got tons of them coming out. Lots to be done in this new building. Move towards that. Move towards being an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. Move towards being used by God and finding your place and Him using you, maybe in the church or in your community or in hospitality. All kinds of ministries. Move towards that. Move away from the easy path of putting another pillow on your favorite couch in front of the TV. That's the easy way. Move away from comfort and towards need. Now, I'm not saying there's no recreation. I'm not saying there's no Sabbath rest. I'm not saying there's no enjoyment. I'm not an aesthetic. I'm not a monastery monk. If you follow me, you'll know that. But I am saying, I think we err too much on comfort and not enough on going to the gates of hell.
right? All right, the other thing is do what's difficult because of God's glory and the need. Go where it's hard because of God's glory and need. That means in your personal life. That means in your relationships with others. That means in your work and your job. That means wherever God has you, go where it's hard. Go where it's difficult. Go where everybody else is running out. Go to those places because you got one foot in heaven. You're safe and you can. All right, why should we do this? Because you're sealed as God's prized possession. And because you're sealed for ultra happiness to come. Amen.